Thanks for listening to the Jazz Johal Show podcast. Today on the pod, the B.C. government promises $230 million for more police and specialized units, but will it make a difference when it comes to public safety? Plus, the speculation vacancy tax expands to more communities in B.C. Is it actually working? And the beautiful game, we continue our World Cup coverage as we mic up rabid Brazil fans in Vancouver. That's all next on the Jazz Johal Show podcast. Now, last night, Coquitlam RCMP responded to 911 calls where two individuals were killed in a gangland shooting. This latest incident comes after a brazened armed robbery attempt at a Port Coquitlam car dealership on Tuesday. And, of course, on Sunday, patrons and staff at Café de Soleil were robbed around 11 a.m. by two hooded, gun-wielding suspects who remain at large. One staff member sustained um, minor injuries. Now, all three of these incidents and random attacks in the downtown core here in Vancouver speak to why public safety has been a major concern for taxpayers. It's the reason why Premier David Eby announced late yesterday afternoon a $230 million investment over the next three years to fill staffing vacancies and increase staffing at, uh, of a specialized units. Take a, take a listen. The RCMP will receive $230 million over three years. The new funding will help keep our streets safer for everyone by supporting the RCMP to operate at full strength, which is just over 2,600 officers. Right now, staffing vacancies and service level reductions are affecting law enforcement in British Columbia. This impacts the safety of officers and the public. Once fully staffed up, police will be able to provide better service in all parts of the province. That was Premier David Eby from yesterday. The government has been under fire from the BC Liberals for being soft on crime. Joining me now to discuss the new dollars and if they will be effective in dealing with the issue of law and order is Global BC's legislative reporter, Richard Zussman. Good afternoon, Richard. Hey, Jess. Good afternoon to you. So, first of all, uh, where did the uh, provincial government find all this money? $230 million over three years is a lot of dollars. Uh, how did they, where did they find it? So we're getting the second quarter financial update tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. And I would suspect, Jazz, that it's going to be good news from Finance Minister Selena Robinson. At Q1, we saw what was projected as a deficit turn into a $700 million or so surplus. I would expect we'll find out that surplus has grown even more. If you aren't keeping track at home, David Eby over the last six days has spent more than $1.2 billion and. Some of that money comes from uh, profits from BC Hydro, but a large majority of it comes from the provincial coffers. So I think tomorrow we'll find out that the province has seen a bounce back in the economy much faster than expected, uh, that there continues to be strong economic signals, even though there are global economic concerns. And that is no doubt where the province found this money. Uh, Something that Mike Farmer, the public safety minister, says he's been advocating for for a while, but now... Premier EBC here, public safety is a hot issue, and all of a sudden the cash is in front of the RCMP to get those officers on the ground. Uh, how much of an effect do you think this announcement will actually have uh, on the ground? Uh, because you still have to hire these officers, that takes time. You have to send these officers to the respective communities, that takes time. Uh, I mean, uh, what impact do you think this will have in the near future? So training, recruitment, placement, as you described, two to three years until we can get to any semblance of full staffing. That's why this funding is over three years. And the public wants to see change now. And crime is one of those things that you can see the impacts immediately. Uh, 
Is it on the news? Is it not on the news? Do we see signs in our community of vandalism or petty theft? You know, these are things that people have all around them. And a funding announcement like this provides a roadmap, but it doesn't provide immediate impacts. And David Eby obviously is hoping to have those impacts felt right away. Some of the positions may be easier to fill than others, but when you're talking about some of these specialized units, it takes time to find the right people to put into those positions. And it will continue to be a political issue until we start you know, seeing those crime issues disappear off the top of the story or the front page of the newspaper. Uh, any sense of why we had these vacancies? I know this is a constant issue. Yeah. You do, you're always filling positions, but when you got 270-odd openings, that tells me perhaps there was some neglect there. That should, This should have been done a long time ago. Yeah, and I think that's one of the questions that David Eby was asked yesterday, Jazz, because the Liberals insist they've been calling for this for years, and Mike Farnworth insists that he had been bringing this issue up to the cabinet table for years and it had not been addressed. So the question is, who is stopping it from happening? And it's unclear uh, where that bottleneck was. Was it through finance? Was it from Premier John Horgan? Uh, Was it something that was put to the side burners? The province dealt with all the economic ramifications of COVID-19. That's very well something that could have happened. And, you know, just placing these officers is is challenging. But we know we also have shortages in all sorts of other parts of the province. We have shortages of nurses. We have shortages of construction workers. And all of these things are having other impacts in our system, our healthcare system, um, our building system. So all of that is, is curious. Um, how much you know these shortages impact the ability to fight crime? We just don't know. We know in some cases... Uh, For example, this money will help bulk up anti-money laundering units. We heard from Justice Austin Cullen that one of the things that would help is if the province could go after those proceeds of crime, but you need investigators to do that, to understand what these proceeds of crime are. Currently, people aren't doing that in B.C. Eventually, the money is now there. The money is now there, and eventually the staff will be there to help address. That's just one small part of all of this. How worried are the is the government in regards to crime and public safety in regards to their own political standing? And I'm not just talking about what we've seen this week, but the four random attacks that we've seen in and around Vancouver alone. How worried are they in regards to people's perceptions of them? Liberals have referred to this as a catch and release. How, how worried are they? There's clearly a Mount Rushmore of political issues now. Public safety, health care, affordability, and housing. And all of those issues worry the government because they are having profound impacts on British Columbians. You know this, Jazz. Voters react to what they feel, what is happening in their daily lives. And if people feel unsafe, they are going to blame government for that. If they feel they can't get the health care they need, they're going to blame government for that. And so there are worries here from David Eby, and that's why he is acting so quickly. I think a lot of us knew that David Eby would move fast. I'm not sure anyone knew he would move this fast in terms of getting the framework in place, the money in place, and now it's about executing on that having those coordinated teams working, having the RCMP fully staffed to see whether the money is being spent in a way that's actually having an impact 
on the way people feel about public safety in their communities. We've talked a little bit about public safety. Uh, the other issue around policing has been, of course, the ongoing conversation uh, in Surrey, where you have, um, of course, the push and pull of whether or not they're going to keep the RCMP or continue the move towards a Surrey police service. Walk me through what the process is in regards to what you're hearing uh, in Victoria for that long-running soap opera. Yeah, I spoke to Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth about this again today. And he is anxiously awaiting a report from uh, the city of Surrey that's expected on his desk by the end of the month around what this transition would look like. And it's really crucial here. The province will be looking at two things. It will be looking at, first off, whether uh, the transition back to the RCMP will ensure that the public in Surrey are kept safe And the other piece in all this is an assurance that there will be enough staff to do that. That's going to be one of the challenges here. We know that there were a number of officers transitioning over to the Surrey Police Service, that there are questions around whether those officers will return to the RCMP. Uh, Those are the crucial factors here. The one thing the province will not be looking at is money. And if there is additional cost, It will be the city of Surrey who will be on the hook here. So we don't have a timeline for how long it will take to do the review. There are many uh, in the community who believe that this is past the point of no return, that there is no way the city can fold up what they've done with the Surrey Police Servicing and remain with the RCMP. But ultimately, the decision will be in the hands of Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth and the public servants around him, though whether they believe that it's possible. Brenda Locke argues that it was the big promise of the campaign, that people understood what they were getting into by voting for her, and she's the mayor and has control of council. And uh, it would there's a tough decision here for Minister Farnworth, who you know may ultimately make the conclusion that we are past that point of no return, But what message does that send to the voters of Surrey who showed up at the polls and elected a mayor who clearly had a vision about this? I mean, it was a very narrow victory, and there's many other issues that are debated in in, in an election, as you know very well. Uh, But but obviously that one was the number one issue in in the way Mr. Mr. McCallum ran that council. Part of uh, the conversation, I assume, is also going to be severance. Now, we had Norm Lipinski on, ahead of the Surrey Police Service. He said, look, if we were to wind everything up, the severance cost alone, uh, estimated by um, the Surrey Police Service, would be $60 million. The, the municipality would be responsible for that. I'm assuming it's not the provincial government. Will that be part of the sort of the mindset and thinking of Mr. Farnworth as Solicitor General, uh, that uh, will Surrey be able to afford the $60 million to, to pay uh, pay the severance out and to wind things down? Yes, it's not his issue, he says. And that's the problem, is that I, voters were not aware, I don't believe, about the cost it would be to scale this back. And the argument that Brenda Locke has made is that operationally they are saving money by staying with the RCMP. But there will be the $60 million plus upfront cost that will have to come from somewhere, and it's not coming from the provincial government. So that means it's coming somehow from the taxpayers in Surrey. Either the city's taking on extra debt, or they are going with a property tax increase in order to cover that cost. And no mayor, let alone one who's in their first year of the job, wants to go to the voters and say, 
oh, by the way, to fulfill my big promise, here's a big increase to your property tax. There, there has to be a political but, angle to this as well, beyond just absolutely. policing in Surrey. The, the, the Surrey continues to grow a thousand new residents a month. Uh, they've got to make sure they don't annoy, annoy Surrey residents as well. Whatever the decision is, uh, whether it's for or against, there has to be a political equation to this as well. Absolutely. And Far North has been insistent time and time again that the money's not there. But could they come up with some sort of creative solution around potentially lending the money to the city of Surrey while it works through uh, whatever this transition is under the promise that when we the city starts saving all of its money that Brenda Locke argues is there, that that then goes back into the pockets of the province. I don't know. That's one possible way to get around this. But you're right. You know, the NDP needs Surrey as well. You know, that's going to be a battleground as it always is in a provincial election. And if there is the belief the voters truly spoke here on this issue, then the NDP will be acutely aware of that as well. They've got a number of MLAs, I think seven of them from Surrey. Uh, they are providing feedback to Mike Farnworth as well in terms of what they're hearing in community. And that's going to help on the political side, put the public safety side uh, part to the side right now. Politically, uh, Farnworth will be getting briefings, no doubt, from from his colleagues in Surrey around this issue. Yeah, I mean, it, it's further reminder that if we're forever going to have a Metro Vancouver police force, it has to be led by the province. The discussion has to be led by the province because if you leave it to one municipality, in this case Surrey, it is a mess. I don't care if you're for the RCMP or against the RCMP; it doesn't matter to me. Um, ultimately, it is a mess at this point, and it's it's unfortunate because uh, whatever decision is made, and someone's not going to like it, and there will be a cost to it uh, as well. Richard, thank you so much for your time, my friend. Yeah, thanks, Jess. Have a great rest of the show. Well, the B.C. government is extending its speculation vacancy tax to more communities in January. Squamish, Lions Bay, Duncan, North Cowichan, Ladysmith and Lake Cowichan will be added to the list, which already includes uh, Metro Vancouver, Greater Victoria, Nanaimo, Abbotsford, Mission, Chilliwack, Kelowna, and West Kelowna. The government says the tax brings in millions of dollars, which is spent to increase the amount of affordable housing. Joining me now to talk about the speculation vacancy tax is Rob Show, who's a political correspondent for Czech News. Hello, Rob. Hey, Jeff. Thank you for your time on this. And I know uh, uh, this is one of those issues that we all like to debate and talk about here. Um, has the government given any sense of why they decided to expand uh, the speculation and vac- vacancy tax for January? Well, what they say about expanding it um, is that they're trying to you know, free up housing stock uh, particularly rental stock uh, in communities where there are low vacancy rates and where local governments have asked uh, or expressed some type of interest in this, although those two things are are uh, not always aligned. But in this case, you know, I have to laugh as a guy who grew up in Ladysmith. Um, you look on the map of how they've expanded this in the island, and there are all sorts of missing communities. You know, you get uh, south of Ladysmith, and then you're into, like, Shemanus, which isn't included, but then you hit Duncan, which is, and it's just like, it's the only, you can only come up with that kind of map if you were in the Ministry of Finance, looking, <laughs> uh, you know, like, just doesn't make sense in the real world. But the tax is supposed to free up housing, and that's the metrics they use when they expand it. And I, and I guess between 2020 and 2021, I think there's nearly 26,000 additional property owners claimed an exemption uh, because mm-hmm. their units were no longer vacant. So they, 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 And I've heard from government officials as well. They said, look, other cities, other jurisdictions in North America are looking at what British Columbia is doing. In regards to 
what they talked about initially when they brought in the speculation and vacancy tax, which was let's go after foreign owners and satellite families. Uh, are they have they been able to uh, extract those dollars from the, those specific owners? Yeah, I mean, remember, the original version of this tax was just a speculation tax. That's mm-hmm. what they called it. They added on vacancy only recently because this was never a speculation tax. It did not penalize you for buying and flipping multiple properties. It only penalized you for buying something and leaving it vacant, and only if it was a, multi- it was a secondary home. And so they added vacancy to it and because the original purpose here was, according to the government, not to target people who all, you know, have uh, cottages or kind of family vacation rentals or pay income tax in British Columbia or uh, it was supposed to be foreign speculators. And the tax never really worked that way. But, you know, government considers it a success because over the time that it has been in place since 2018 – Uh, the number of foreign owners who have left the real estate market because of this tax, who are paying it and then left, uh, they've they've dropped 54% at least. And so that's great. Government considers that a success. The problem is that the number of BC owners hit by the tax during that same time period uh, has increased uh, almost 49%. And I have to adjust those numbers a little bit this year because they slightly, but that that was as of last year. Mm-hmm. And so what this really is, is a wealth tax on British Columbians who have more than one property and uh, you have a vacation property uh, or a property that uh, they don't rent. And maybe they, you know, live in it part time or family come in and out. Mm-hmm. And that's what it is. And the numbers bear that out every single year. You know, there, there are 3,000 230 British Columbian residents who paid this tax last year compared to only 1,000 foreign owners and 1,400 other Canadians and 1,200 satellite families. So, you know, combine the Canadians and British Columbians together, uh, and it's twice the rate of the foreign and satellite families. So that's Mm -hmm. what it is. It's a tax paid by British Columbians on multiple properties, which is fine. It's just not how it was crafted and sold and it's not how the government explains the benefit of it every single year. Now, I'm looking at the numbers here in front of me. The tax brought in just over $78 million in 2021. Uh, $44 million, or 57%, came from foreign owners or satellite families. But the tax rate for satellite families is 2% of a property's assessed value. And the uh, for for Canadian citizens or permanent residents, it's zero point five percent. So yeah. um, locals pay less. I mean, and and uh, the foreigners pay more. But in regards to sheer numbers, in regards to what you're saying, the Canadians and and British Columbians collectively, um, are, there's more of them by sheer number. Yeah, government spins this every year that it's the foreign owners who are paying the speculate most of the speculation tax which is true but it's because they pay four times the rate yeah. of british columbians and more british columbians pay it uh than foreign owners so it depends on how you want to spin the numbers the amount though is interesting 78 million dollars this year i believe the total since it came into place is now 309 million dollars since 2018. So it's not an insignificant no. chunk of change that government gets every year. It will point out, though, the, the NDP that they spend, you know, have spent something like two or three billion dollars on housing during that time. So, you know, 300 million of that is not, um, it, it's not nothing. But no. it, it, you know, it, it's clearly 
the way government likes to trumpet this these days is that mostly foreigners are paying it, which technically is true if you don't count the number of people paying it. And the money is a great revenue that government uses to fund housing projects. And, and that's sort of what it considers the ongoing success of the speculation tax. Yeah, and it's what, not going anywhere soon. It's, it's, it's staying here for yeah, sure. Exactly. I remember when I was in MLA, uh, I got a call from a Calgary resident who owned a property in Victoria. Their daughter um, went to UVic, would live there for a, a portion of the year during the school year. They wanted to keep the condo. One day they'd retire and move into that condo during the retirement years. But because of the speculation tax, they ended up having to sell it. They weren't happy, but it is what it is. Uh, Now, in this case, Squamish is going to be included now, Um, but they haven't gone near Whistler yet. Are they going to – is there any talk of potentially going – you know, bringing this in in communities like Whistler or other sort of um, touristy-type areas? Gulf Islands would be another one as well. No. Um, we, we ask the minister that question all the time. And she says, look, these tourist communities, their population rapidly increases in the summer or in the winter, in the case of Whistler, right? You have this influx of people. And then and to apply the tax that way there would cause problems. And so the Gulf Islands, uh, people have been talking about it and Whistler, they've been talking about it. And the government's held back on that unless they can find some way to put it in there that doesn't disrupt the, the fragile balance of, of, of boom and uh, and and bust kind of t- uh, tourist towns like that so no I don't I don't think that that they're but they are eventually I mean here's the thing about the spec tax now is are they going to keep it in place I guess so David Eby is bringing in a real speculation tax uh, like an actual speculation tax he's calling it an anti-flipping tax mm-hmm. and it penalizes you if you buy and sell a property within two years. Uh, We don't know the exact rate because he hasn't said it yet, but it was part of his housing platform and it's still coming. So you will have a vacancy tax in Metro in Vancouver, in the city of Vancouver. You will have a speculation and vacancy tax in place. And then you will have a real speculation tax called the anti-flipping tax. So you're going to have a bunch of different weird layered, multiple oddly named taxes all over the place, which um, confuse some people, I guess. And the question with the government is, do you just leave all this in place or do you have to at one point rationalize all the taxes and make them make more sense? I think we have an issue that they'll be debating in the next provincial election. That's for sure. Thanks so much, yeah. Rob. Really, I see our producer, uh, Leo Coelho, uh, through the glass here. He's in our uh, studio next door to ours, but I can see him through the glass. And he's already dancing to all the, the music that you're just hearing there. Uh, of course, you know the World Cup is going on. We're following it very closely today. Uh, I would basically say probably um, the one country that's probably expected to win, or at least people assume they're ranked number one. Brazil was playing Serbia. Leo happened to be in the building. Hello, Leo. Hi, Jess. Hi, Hi Ryan. Hi, Bianca. Hi, everybody. Hey. <laughs> now, I know uh, we were talking this morning in our in our, in our editorial meeting. What are we going to do with the World Cup today? I said, you know what? Brazil's playing, and I know you talk about uh, the team all the time, and we have our colleague Bianca Rego, also Brazilian heritage. You grew up in, in uh, where did you grow up in Brazil? I grew up in, I, I mean, I, I'm from Rio originally, but I grew up in Brazilia. That's where, where I studied most of the time. That's the capital, though. Yeah. So it was like back and forth between the two cities. Um, yeah, but... Um, Tell me, when, when when we talk about football, yes. what it means to Brazilian people. So, uh, Brazil, like, it's a soccer, uh, I mean, I, I would say, 
I know we're big like in other sports too, like volleyball and uh, some some guys from track and field. And uh, but yeah, but like it's like our religious number one sport has been like forever. It's in I mean, it's part of our culture. And the World Cup just means like everything like to us, right? We're very proud of being like the only nation in the world that has won five times. Mm-hmm. No other nation has won five. So. I, so we decided to put a mic on you. Yeah. We put a mic on uh, Bianca Rego as well. We also put a mic on Bianca's father who's watching at home. So because we wanted to get the reaction. Now, before we go to that tape, what were you feeling inside as the game is starting? Like what, what, what goes through your mind? Give me, talk to me a yes. little bit about the emotions you're going I know, through. I know. Uh, to paint the picture, the first game is always like, the most complicated one, like emotionally wise, like unless you're in the final, because like it's the debut. I think it's like for Brazil, for everybody, right? Like you just want to come like in the first game and you want to show with pride who you were. And like, and for a team like Brazil, which are like among the favorites, like France, like we've seen like some underdogs beating like uh, Japan, beating Germany and Saudi Arabia, beating Argentina. You want to show who you are, right? You kind of come with the right foot. So we're tense because we know we got to beat them. We, we can't tie. We can't lose. We have to show them. Where well, I could from. feel the tension. I could see you were very nervous. Yeah. You were, you're, you're, uh, you were, I've never seen you like that, to be very honest with you. <laughs> so, you know, we put a mic on you, like I said, on Bianca as well, and, and her dad. And uh, we're going to begin this particular uh, bit of tape with all three of you, but we're going to start it with, I think you were singing the national anthem, Brazilian national anthem, and so a lot of this is going to be actually in Portuguese. I don't think you need translation, but you're going to see the tension, you're going to feel the tension. Take a listen to Leo, uh, Bianca, and Bianca's dad watching the game today. O sol da liberdade em raios fugidos Brilhou no céu da pátria nesse instante Se o penhor própria natureza És belo, és forte, impávido, colosso Que o teu futuro inspire essa grandeza Terra dourada Entre outras mil és tu, Brasil, ó pátria amada Dos filhos deste sol és mais gentil, pátria amada, Brasil. Caralho! Como porra! Caralho! Boa, Vinícius! Mano! Que bolão do Casimiro! Olha só! So close to you, não? Ih, bolão! Rafinha! Porra! Que merda! Vinícius! Ai! Bolão, bolão pro Vini. Agora? Ah, meu mano. Pelo amor de Deus, meu irmão. Pelo amor de Deus, mano. Como é que fez o gol desse, caralho? Mano. Ai, off the side of the... Ah. On the post again. That is so annoying, but that's okay. Oh, go, 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 go. Ah, so close. 
close. Go, go! That's how you do it. That's how you do it. So we don't got a lot, a lot of time here, Leo. Leo, I got to ask you, well, this is game one. What are you going to do if you win the World Cup? Oh, uh, we're gonna go. We, we're gonna go crazy. We've been chasing that sixth title for 20 years now. It's it wasn't 02, so yeah, it's been like four World Cups. Well, so. well, my friend, you brought so much energy, intensity. You, uh, Bianca, and her dad. It was just a phenomenal for me. It yeah. was just as entertaining to watch you watch the game as I was watching the game. So, yeah. thank you so much today, and uh, uh, and I just love your passion and energy for the beautiful game, my friend. Oh. Uh, thanks so much, Jess, Ryan Baker, for having me on. I'm pretty sure the next two are going to be way more calm because, you know, the tension of the the beginning is just gone. But, yeah, we'll still, still good luck to Canada. And, uh, yeah, we'll talk soon. <laughs> Hopefully we get the sixth star. <laughs> there you go. Brazil beat Serbia 2-0 today. Today we're all Brazilian. There you go. You listen to the Jazz Joe Haas Show. Back after the news. BC Premier David Eby yesterday, actually during this show at 4 o'clock, so just about 24 hours ago, 25 hours ago, announced that the province is injecting uh, $230 million in funding to help uh, fill vacancies in rural RCMP departments and hire additional officers for uh, specialized units. The money will be delivered over three years and is also intended to address recommendations that uh, came out of the public inquiry into money laundering. Now, uh, Mr. Eby says that the money will be targeted at filling long-standing vacancies in rural communities of fewer than 5,000 people, as well as allowing regional RCMP units to reach their full authorized uh, staffing levels. Now, uh, Mr. Eby was asked at that press conference why all of a sudden the funding for public safety has arrived when when the issues in and around uh, public safety have been around for us uh, for many months, some would say a couple of years with COVID. Take a listen. So the issue of public safety is a complex one. Uh, there are two tracks to our public safety announcements. One is to address the root causes of crime. Uh, to address the issues of mental health and addiction, poverty, that lead people into a cycle of involvement with the criminal justice system. The other is around enforcement. Uh, And it's critical to make sure that our police force is keeping up with our population growth in the province. We added 100,000 people to our province last year. We expect to set another record this year of people moving to British Columbia. Part of the public services people rely on in quickly growing communities are police officers. So that's part of what we need to do to ensure public safety. We need those staffing resources to make sure that people can rely on services when they call 911, that police will be able to respond. That is Premier David Eby. Joining me now to talk about the issue of public safety is Mike Farnworth, Minister of Public Safety and the Solicitor General of BC. Minister, thank you for joining us today. 
My pleasure. Uh, let's touch on yesterday's announcement, $230 million in funding uh, for um, law enforcement, of course, uh, stronger pu- public safety for communities and some specialized uh, uh, police as well. How will this, in your mind, address the immediate concerns the public have when it comes to public safety in our communities? So what this funding will do, it will ad- ad- address the challenges that the Provincial Police Service has been facing uh, right across British Columbia in a number of areas, particularly rural British Columbia, smaller communities, uh, indigenous communities, as well as the specialized units that uh, are part of the overall Provincial Police Service and include uh, municipal and uh, uh, RCMP detachments in larger communities. Mm. And so by working with the RCMP and local government, identifying what the gaps are, uh, we are going to be able to fill about 277 positions, and that will allow then, uh, in terms of core policing, uh, to be able to ensure that the, those specialized teams are able to have the human resources, the people in them, that they need to function as effectively as they can. Mm-hmm. Uh, why were these positions not filled uh, uh, earlier? I mean, 277 positions can have a huge impact uh, around the province. Why has it taken this long to fill these positions and why do they go unfilled for so long? Yeah. So f- one of the things that we have been doing over the last couple of years is working with the RCMP and local governments. So local governments coming saying the challenges that they're facing in terms of the number of police that, that they have that are paid for by the, uh, the province. Uh, working with the RCMP to identify exactly what are the pressures that they are facing uh, and the ministry has really had to do a deep dive with them. And so once we had a full understanding of the picture, then it's, you know, the putting together the Treasury Board submission, it's putting together, okay, what, what, what's really needed, and then what's the impact with that? And along with that comes the recruiting that needs to take place. So this is a three-year plan, so that will then allow us to, to fill at a pace that we know that the uh, RCMP depot uh, in Regina is able to bring uh, on board uh, new recruits. And this work has taken place in conjunction with other work that we've been doing on the public safety, the policing front, to deal with uh, other priorities that police have had as well around uh, specific initiatives, whether it's uh, a forensic lab, whether it's legislation in terms of the witness protection program. All of those projects have been underway, uh, and this has been a key one, but it's required a lot of in-depth work and, and, in essence, a deep dive into the sort of the human resource side of policing in the province. So you think that that the RCMP, uh, in this case, will be able to train uh, the 277 officers needed, even even though it's over three years? It does take a while to train all these officers. It is an HR challenge. Do you think you can do it within those three years? Absolutely, uh, and one of the, so a typical a typical troop uh, that goes through the depot is between twenty eight and thirty six, and with the uh, with the commitment by the government and the money being there, uh, that's the other thing is 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 that when the public service can and the RCMP look at okay requests for uh, more RCMP members, one of the things is is the money there to pay for the training, uh, and so. Yes, it is, and so I expect that the, a typical uh, uh, platoon that goes through the depot will go from the 28 to the 36. They, I think they do about, on average, about 40 a year, so that is going to be able to uh, supply the recruits that we need. We are by far the largest um, uh, you know, detachment in the province, E-Division, which is the, uh, the entire province of British Columbia, 
And so we will expect the bulk of those uh, recruits will be here. And one of the significant policy changes that has taken place is that if you are recruited from British Columbia, for example, then you will be posted to British Columbia. Uh, and that hasn't always been the case. So that's uh, a significant step. And that, coupled with the changes that have happened with the, uh, the police in terms of the RCMP, in terms of their contract, where their wages are now competitive with VPD and the Ontario uh, Provincial Police Force, for example, uh, we are confident that uh, the RCMP will be able to, to meet the, uh, the recruitment challenges. Minister, let's look at the immediate concerns here um, in uh, Vancouver. We often hear about four random attacks per day in this city. How do you as a minister address that? Because those concerns are here and now they are immediate. Uh, you kind of assume that the recent brazen violent attacks happen in large American cities and not Vancouver. And so that the concerns that we're talking about in many cases, are of this week and are immediate. We often talk about, as I said, those four random attacks per day. How do you deal with those immediate concerns while dealing with some of these HR changes that you're talking about? So there's two things uh, in regard to your question. The first is in dealing with the, 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 the crime spree that we saw and in the, in the case of the shootings out in the Tri-Cities, uh, the one on the car dealership, which is funny enough, right near my house, uh, the police, the local police are on that. Uh, they've made a number of arrests and they are, you know, and they've got the resources they need to be able to deal with those, those situations as they arrive. And they do a terrific job. The other is around these random stranger attacks and the mental health issues that we are increasingly seeing in terms of the challenges that police face. That's why the announcement that was made on Sunday, uh, by the Premier is, uh, is of critical importance because that's seeing an investment on that mental health side uh, in terms of, of, of resources that police have been asking for. So the peer-assisted care teams, for example, and the car teams, the, that funding that's going to enable that, uh, uh, those programs to be expanded across the province. So the car teams, which have a mental health worker along with police, uh, is going from, uh, will go to about another additional 12 communities, and that's primarily the hub communities, but at the same time, the peer-assisted care, te- uh, care teams, which was one of the key priorities that police have been asking for and was in the Lepard Butler report, which we started off in the North Shore and within the uh, and, and to New Westminster, has seen a significant reduction in the number of calls that police have to go to to deal with mental health issues, that they have mental health supports that are able to go out and deal with them, and then they contact the police if they're needed. Uh, and that can help. Um, uh, significantly, along with that, with the other changes that were announced, so that there's greater coordination between police, mental health, um, in, and, 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 and corrections and probation officers, sorry, in terms of identifying people who are coming out that may potentially be high risk, and so you can ensure that there's a focus on those individuals uh, much earlier and much sooner. Uh, Minister, since we have you here, uh, I just want to shift focus a little bit. We spent a lot of time talking about, all, obviously, the conversation in and around policing in Surrey, whether or not, uh, you know, they will stick with moving towards the Surrey Police Service or uh, revert back to the Surrey RCMP. Uh, You, I understand, are expecting a report from the city. Can you just walk me through what the process is going to be over the next little while uh, so our audience knows when that decision comes, how it'll work? So if the city of Surrey wishes to go back on their transition uh, to the Surrey Police Service and go back to the RCMP, um, first off, there's been a considerable amount of money spent on that transition, and and it is quite advanced. They're going to have to put forward a plan in terms of how they are going to do that. 
and that plan needs to be reviewed by my director of police services to see that it ensures that Surrey is able to maintain uh, safe and adequate and effective policing. And coupled with that, there also needs to be a plan from the uh, from the RCMP in terms of how they're going to restaff um, the, uh, the that that transition. And so that's uh, and and so that plan has to come in. And again, that has to be reviewed by my director of police services as to whether or not the proposal that they have got will in fact ensure one a smooth transition back to uh, deals with you know the human resource issues of people who join the Surrey Police Service in good faith, the capital questions, uh, and also, you know, how much is this going to cost? And that's the and that plan has to be reviewed, and that plan obviously uh, also needs to be made public, which is what uh, which is what uh, my ministry would ensure. And and only then mm-hmm. uh, can it can it could something move forward. And and that will come down to a decision you'll make after uh, consultation and the recommendations that you will receive. You will make that decision. Yeah, so that would come saying that yes, there's a viable, workable plan, or you know, there, there's 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 issues with it, uh, and so the city of Surrey has said they intend to get the plan, their plan, to me by the end of the month, and I look forward to seeing what that plan ha- what that plan has has to say. Well, Minister, uh, it'll be a very interesting conversation, that's for sure. We'll look forward to to that decision, and I really appreciate your time today talking about uh, your new two hundred thirty million dollars in funding for uh, for police as well. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. Well, I was uh, reading the uh, Vancouver Sun today, and it told this amazing story of uh, a teacher named Carrie Gelson. Uh, and it was 11 years ago. Uh, she's an elementary school teacher. And she exposed the truth about poverty and the impact it was having on children and their mental health, specifically in Vancouver's poorest neighborhood. She talked about the uh, frequent episodes of emotional breakdowns, mental breakdowns, as kids uh, deal with the issue of hunger, lack of sleep, or a disorder at home, poor hygiene, all those impacts that uh, that make dif- learning difficult. Well, that letter that she sent out, and, and there was a line that she used in her communique, according to this article, uh, it goes something like this. It says, quote, because every child in Vancouver matters, uh, when she appealed for help. Well, according to the article, the, the, that letter, that communique, led to the creation of the Vancouver Sons Adopt-A-School program. Well, joining me now to talk a little bit about the program and, and, and the help it provides is Jillian Shaw. She's a co-founder of Adopt-A-School and director of the Vancouver Sun Children's Fund. Jillian, hello. Welcome. Welcome. Hi, Jeff. So good to hear your voice. Yeah, good to have you as well. Walk me through a little bit in regards to that initial, uh, you know, uh, conversation from 11 years ago and where the program is today. Well, you know, Jeff, the program, I'm a a journalist and and now retired at the Vancouver Sun. And I, I was on the board then of the Vancouver Sun Children's Fund, as I am now. And we got this letter. We didn't get it. It was actually our education reporter, Mm -hmm. um, Janet Steppenhagen, wrote a story about this letter that Carrie Gelson wrote saying, you know, kids are coming to school hungry, with holes in their shoes, covered with bed bug bites. And it was a shock for us, Jazz. Like, as journalists, we were sitting in downtown Vancouver, and we didn't even realize that that many blocks away... There were children, you know, we talk about children in other countries needing our help. Children in our own neighborhoods needed our help. And it struck us as journalists that way. It 
it struck the entire board of the Vancouver Sun Children's Fund. And when and our community responded, Jazz, and they responded in with such generosity. I mean, they were bringing food and clothing and coats to us to see more. And we we looked at this and we thought, this isn't a one-off. We, you know, this is this is children in need in our own communities. What can we do? That's how we launched Adopt a School. Jazz, we thought we'd, you know, maybe need $50,000 or something to do everything that needed to be done. Mm-hmm. I, I tell you, 11 years later, the first year, it was hundreds of thousands of dollars, Jazz. And thanks to our donors, this year we have $2 million in, in requests from schools for just everything from basic food mm-hmm. to shoes to things like that will help with the mental health crisis that has only been exacerbated um, by COVID and poverty. Mm-hmm. No, you raise a very good point, uh, especially with COVID, uh, and it's something we probably didn't, we really didn't talk much about when it comes to mental health, uh, mental health uh, eleven years ago. So, if somebody, let's say a teacher or a school, reaches out for help, um, what kind of uh, things are you paying for or trying to raise money for uh, in and around mental health? Well, around, you know, Jazz, really what it is, what we're finding when these teachers come to us, and this is why we call it Adopt a School, we could call it Adopt a Child, but it's really the the teachers, the principals, the staff in these schools know firsthand what's going on. So we go to visit the schools and we see what's happening. And, And really what it is, is the effects of poverty, the stress of poverty, I mean, just think, Jazz, if you had to come to work mm-hmm. with no food, if you didn't have supper last night, if you didn't have breakfast this morning, if you, you know, if you were cold, if you had no place to sleep, um, how would that affect your learning? So we have teachers who are struggling. Teachers aren't paid to do this. Teachers aren't paid to find mattresses for children or, you know, buy bed bug spray or go out and buy shoes and coats they're not you know they're not they're not paid to make sure a child gets fed but in fact in these schools the teachers they can't do their job when the children don't have the basic necessities of life mm-hmm. well, and mm-hmm. sorry go ahead no it's just uh, it, it's just a lot of these social emotional and and mental issues are around just that. I can tell you a story, Jazz, about, mm-hmm. I mean, we have a lot of them, but there was a, a little girl who was, who was taken to see a pediatrician. She was sent, you know, through referral, I think, through the school to a pediatrician um, because she had developed a really crippling and intense um, phobia uh, of in, insects. Um, the pediatrician examined her and, and found her covered in bed bug bites. So the pediatrician thought this, no wonder this child has, is so scared of insects. But the little girl said, no, it wasn't that. It was, she didn't like the crunchy bits in her food. And Jazz, this was cockroaches that would drop into the pot on the stove that her mother would try to fish out. So when we talk about mental and emotional health, I mean, the impact on children um, living in poverty is something... I think we just don't see it a lot. Yeah. Like we just assume they're okay. And we talk about them being resilient. Well, it's very hard to be resilient when you don't have enough 
to eat. Yeah. So those that are listening, folks that are listening and who do want to help, uh, where can they go uh, to learn more about uh, Adopt-A-School? Uh, and if they, if they want to donate money, where can they go? Well, um, Jazz, our stories run. We're running our campaign now, and we just tell these stories in the Vancouver Sun. Our website, because this is a charity, um, a, a fully you know standalone charity with a charitable number, it's the um, Vancouver Sun Children's Fund. Our website is vansunkidsfund.ca, and if you just click on that, vansunkidsfund.ca, it will take you to the stories all about us and very a very big donate now button, Jazz, I can <laughs> tell you. And and one of the things that is very important to a lot of our donors, and I have to say we couldn't have done this for this eleven years without the generosity of our donors. And and a hundred percent of our donations um, go to help kids. We we don't we don't so much as buy a cup of coffee from so if you give us a hundred dollars, a hundred dollars. If you give us a dollar, a dollar goes to help. There's no administration fee taken off donations. Well, so that is uh, you. You folks are doing phenomenal work, and there is a tremendous need still out there. Jillian, uh, thank you so much for your time. And once again, if you do want to donate, it's VansunKidsFund.ca. That's VansunKidsFund.fund.ca. Uh, Jillian, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Jeff. All right. That's uh, Jillian Shaw, co-founder of of, uh, Adopt-A-School and director of the Vancouver Sun Children's Fund. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m., on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall PC. Talk to you next time.